All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Another round up here, Michael's one and two, Vanciano. Fellas, welcome to the show. We were just getting into it before we before you got on here, so maybe we just fire right in. I mean, the big story of the week is obviously Silvergate, but as we're recording here, it's also Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank, their shares opened down something like forty percent today. So we're going to get deep in the weeds on on Silvergate, but uh, I think kind of the the theme of this is that it's a broader it's a broader issue and not just one that's relegated to crypto. So Michael, can you explain what you were just starting to explain to me about? Um, what's going on with uh, Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank and is like the the bank for tech startups, especially in the Bay Area, I think across, you know, also the New York area and basically just tech startups writ large. What they provide is a more friendly experience for businesses that have maybe raised a bunch of venture capital, but don't have three years of audited financials or you know, they don't have sort of the things that you would expect that a business opening a bank account at, you know, one of the the, the Wells Fargo's, JP Morgan Chase, et cetera, one of those banks would likely look for when evaluating bank uh, um, or customer ability to, uh, you know, be a bank customer, um, <clears throat> whatever, the, whatever their controls are. So they've kind of taken this approach of these bank, these, these businesses uh, companies that are growing that are highly charged venture capital opportunities for them have the potential of not only just putting the money that they just raised, the tens of millions or you know millions to tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars that they just raised and putting that into our bank, but also if on the outside chance that they become the next Stripe, Google, Facebook, et cetera, they're going to be the banking partner that they go with um, because they've been with us the entire time. And so it, it's sort of the like buy low process of getting access to the next wave of large companies. What Silicon Valley Bank does, and there are a number of others that do this as well, um, but one of the things that they have also built out is a practice around services additional to just like general banking services. So they've got an entire venture debt business and and they you know look at having venture debt offerings for a lot of their clients as well. Um, they allow for potential for illiquid borrow. So you as uh, a founder or an early employee at one of these businesses can put up your equity in that business that is you know, the banking partner to Silicon Valley Bank and actually draw a line of credit against that. Um, they also do this for venture firms and venture firms allow uh, some venture firms, you, know, you can go to them and actually get uh, a borrow against your GP stake in the, in the venture funds um, and so there, there's just like a lot that's tied up in the tech industry, whether it be on the comp company side or the investment side. And so um, there's a lot that looks similar. I'd say there's also a lot that's different between Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate. Silvergate was sort of the equivalent specifically for the crypto side of the world, where it was, you know, the, the place that would bank the crypto companies. It was the place where you could, as a crypto client, you could... Um, I think they had the business of you put up your Bitcoin or um, uh, crypto as collateral and you could borrow against that. Um, they also had the Silvergate Exchange Network. 
And so th- this, I'm, I'm, you know, not an analyst when it comes to financial institutions, but we've been digging into this for the last bit. Um, and so what it's looking like, at least with Silvergate and the reason why they're shutting down operations is um, really at this point, not having anything to do with crypto other than the fact that it seems like the crypto crowd and the customer base that they had and the deposits that they had was a very fickle group. Where as soon as FTX blew up, you started to see massive uh, withdrawals of, of cash from Silvergate because everybody was afraid that you know the the same thing was going to happen to FTX. I think you know a lot of the same contagion concerns were there. And so what 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 does this mean? So when you're a bank, you put cash into the bank as a depositor. What the bank does, and their their general business model is they take that cash and and use it productively. Now this cash can go towards a lending operation, like I was describing, whether you're lending it out to customers who are putting up their illiquid capital or or collateral up, um, or uh, the other use of that capital, the deposits, is you can go off and buy um, marketable securities. And there are a ton of rules around what you can buy. Um, historically, this is some form of fixed income product, whether it be treasuries, um, whether it be mortgage-backed securities. Sometimes you can buy corporate debt. Um, there, there's sort of a plethora of different options that you have as a bank, but there are also very, very clear rules about levels of risk and levels of liquidity at each one of these different risk thresholds. This is why ratings agencies are so important. And so as you start to see the massive withdrawals going into Q, end of Q4 for Silvergate, you you start to see them having to meet those withdrawal demands, <clears throat> which means that they're having to sell a lot of the fixed income that they had bought over the last few years. Now, what happens with fixed income when you see rates rise in the way that we've seen over the last 12 months, uh, it means that anything that was purchased prior to then has an inverse relationship in terms of the price that you can sell it based on, with the the yield that the market is currently demanding. And so if when you go to 0 to 5%, the price that you're able to sell those marketable securities for is priced as if that bond was yielding 5%. So you have to sell those assets at a loss. And that's that's effectively what happened and that was the reason why Silvergate had to delay their 10k. Um they identified losses, they did the you know, the out of uh, out of normal cadence reporting um, that that contagion led to further bank runs, further selling. That that's generally what happened, I think, in the case of Silvergate. Um, what we're seeing now, though, with Silicon Valley Bank, and this is happening in real time, and I, I do want to emphasize, I think there's a lot that's different here. There's still some things that are the same. Um, Silvergate, or sorry, Silicon Valley Bank, um, they. So over 2021, their deposits went from 102 billion to 189 billion. And so think about the customer base of Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of them are tech companies, startups that raised a ton of money. And in 2021, you saw a lot of that money raised from venture capital or other offerings that where did the money go? Well, it went to the bank and they were sitting on cash. Um, so and and in 2021, the bank has to do something with that cash. So what Silicon Valley Bank did, at least as far as we can tell, is that they went out and bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities with a long-term duration. And, and when you're holding these assets on the bank balance sheet, you, you basically have two camps of assets. There's available for sale, and then there's hold to maturity. 
available for sale are assets that the bank has deemed marked to market and, and we could sell if we needed to. Hold to maturity is we're holding these to maturity. We don't have to realize a loss if the price of those assets change, but we're just going to hold them until they expire and we're going to continue to earn the yield that we were earning you know, uh, based off of the, the agreements until we hold them to maturity. And so what happened yesterday was Silicon Valley Bank announced that they had sold off 80% of their available for sale securities, um, which was a total of $21 billion uh, of assets, but they sold it at a loss of $1.8 billion. And at the time of the announcement, the entire market cap of Silicon Valley Bank was around 15 to $16 billion. Um, now they, they don't really have that much more if they've sold off 80%, but they're taking the, the assets that they have and they're reinvesting them into shorter duration assets that obviously will have a higher yield given that they sold off lower yielding assets and now we have higher yield. So now they're going to be able to buy higher yielding assets. Um, and so what, what is now happening is now there's a concern that you don't have, the bank doesn't have enough liquid capital to be able to. Uh, service withdrawals or the lending business if they need to. Um, this, I think, you know, is a solution that that is solvable, and and they have announced that they're going out and working with Goldman Sachs to sell common and preferred uh, in a secondary offering to the tune. I, I, I see two reports: they're either one point seven five or two point two five billion dollars. Um, and if they can do that and they're successful at raising that capital in, in short order, they should be able to, to fill the gap and, and meet any demands for withdrawals. Um, the bigger kind of elephant in the room is what happens with, and you just had this on the chart, what happens with the hold yeah. to maturity assets? The hold to maturity assets are also long dated assets, but they can't sell them because the estimates are that if they were to sell them, they'd have to mark to market them. They'd go from hold to maturity to available for sale and mark to marketing those assets. The loss that they would incur is actually greater than, than the market cap of the company. Uh, and so this you know, means that they're stuck and they're having to hold on to these assets. And they're every quarter, I think three to four billion of these hold to maturity assets are, are coming due and they're, they're maturing out. Um, so it, it's just going to take time. Um, but you know, the, the solution here is raise quick cash by doing a secondary offering, um, and wait out the hold to maturity assets until they're mature, um, and, and kind of shore up the bank's balance sheet. But I think the overarching point here, and I know, you know, there are senators out there that love to point that Silvergate was potentially complicit in illegal activity. Um, I think the bigger issue, frankly, is just there, there were a lot of deposits at a time when there were low interest rates and a lot of withdrawals when there were a, at a time when there were really high interest rates. And that really causes consternation from a bank balance sheet perspective because you're forced to sell at lower prices than when you bought. Um, so I, I think it's not super complicated. There's a lot more nuance that, frankly, I don't necessarily understand. But, you know, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. And, and that's kind of the storyline. Do we yeah. know how much cash they have to meet withdrawals? Or like available to sell assets. I guess they have none now. But like, what would be the cash balance that they have to? Well, so they sold twenty-one billion dollars worth of available for sale assets. I don't know if it was twenty-one at their cost basis or twenty-one at their sell price. But there was a one point eight billion dollar, uh, one point eight billion dollar loss incurred from that selling. Hmm. And then, how many deposits they do got... they have? I actually don't know that off the top of my head. 
guys, just before before we go further, there was a um, I, I just want to. There was actually a really great piece written about this. Uh, this is um, the guy's name is Jesse Austin Campbell, which was how banks fail. Um, I, I didn't know who this person was, but apparently, I think they worked at J.P. Morgan before this. And basically, it's kind of a it's kind of a helpful understanding. And there's there are pictures here to kind of describe uh, a lot of what you were saying, Michael. This is um, an example, in if you're following along in picture form, of what a bank balance sheet looks like at a super, super high, very simplified level. So one of the rules for, for folks who are not familiar with uh, financial statements is when you're looking at a balance sheet, your assets equals liabilities plus equity. So what that actually means for a bank is what they do. Like when you, when you give them money, what they do is they turn around and put that into loans. They either make direct loans or they buy securities like mortgage-backed securities, which is basically securitized mortgages, or they buy U.S. treasuries. And those are that's like an asset for the bank. Their liabilities are what they owe you in terms of deposits. And then there's some small amount of buffer. And basically the buffer, which is the equity capital that's in a bank, is supposed to cover any, what he calls uh-ohs, but basically loans going bad. So that's, again, kind of what what this is. So lo- the way lo- he- loans loans going bad or securities that you have to sell at a loss. It's both, right? It's the the direct the direct lending that they make people can default, right? So they actually reserve a little bit to to account for that. And then there's also securities going going selling at a loss. So you were getting into this, but like I have a 5-year-old brain when it comes to math, so there's just inverse relationship in between yields and the price of a bond is is what I always go to. And so when you see these yields going uh, up and up and up. It means that bond prices are going down, down, down. So when there are de- when there are deposits, right, which are the liabilities of the bank that basically customers get worried about and they all call in at the same time, then you need to sell your assets, which is your portfolio of liquid securities, which is what Michael was talking about before. If yields have been going up, that means the price of your assets are going down. And then something that's an unrealized loss on paper becomes very real. And that's what happened to Silvergate in the beginning when there was concentration around the types of depositors that were parking money at Silvergate. All of them, because they're all in the crypto industry, basically they were all facing the same trouble at the same time. Everyone needed their money at once. So it wouldn't have been a problem, right? If there was diversification among the depositors for Silvergate. But the problem is that they're that they're they were concentrated and they all had a very similar set of needs, which made them pull money at the same time, which made them realize that loss. And I think... That's a, that's a similar problem with what's going on with, with Silvergate or uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? Similar set of customers, similar set of lending activities. And I, I got a question for you, and you, you alluded to this, Michael, but the broad criticism about the management at Silvergate is that they mismanage their duration, right? That's the criticism. You're supposed to, within your portfolio of assets, you're supposed to have diversification across duration. So instead of just you know, a 10-year, right, in terms of uh, U.S. Treasuries. You're supposed to have, like, more short-dated debt, even more long-dated debt. You're supposed to have kind of a spectrum there. The The question is, though, you would have to imagine a lot of these deposits came in in 2021 for Silvergate. And at that time, if you remember, Fed funds was zero. At the very front end of the curve, actually, I'm pretty sure nominally, like, the, the three-month Treasury, I'll look this up, but I'm pretty sure it went nominally negative. So, Am I missing something here? Like there was no yield to be had in the front end of the curve. I don't know how they were supposed to take duration risk or, or diversify. Well, uh, yeah. So I don't know how they were supposed to be diversified and also still be profitable, essentially. Right. Um, right. What, what that forced you to do 
is look at further dated, uh, further duration options, uh, sorry, further duration bonds, not actual options, but um, go out on the yield curve to actually get some yield, which meant that your duration is a lot longer. And I think you could justify this, especially with, you know, in 2021, where you look at the net inflows and outflows and you say, okay, you know, like, let's do a, a distribution model and say like, uh, uh, three standard deviation withdraw month or, or quarter is going to happen, you know, at what chance, how do we model out, you know, what liquidity we would need in that case. It's just, we've been meeting these like black swan level events of, of lack of liquidity and, and, you know, consternation in the crypto industry. <clears throat> and then when you call out a specific bank for having potentially illicit dealings with someone who looks like they're, you know, going down for fraud, uh, of course, there's going to be an actual run on the bank. And of course, you know, people are going to get concerned, just like they got concerned as, as soon as FTX or Voyager or Celsius blew up and they wanted to get their cash off. So <clears throat> I think you're able to justify this from a management perspective saying, listen, we modeled this out. This was outside the bounds of what we had ever been able to forecast. And so therefore, we felt fine with the duration risk that we were taking. Also, it was the only option at the time. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that that's generally kind of how I would look at it. The, the other thing I'd say about Silicon Valley Bank is, mm -hmm. you know, just think about who their customer base is. Their customer base is a bunch of startups who in the last 12 months have been depleting their deposits because they have to pay operating expenses and there haven't been that many new, you know, massive swings of investment uh, for a lot of those businesses. And so the cash deposits that went from 102 to 190 in 2021 have just been slowly dissipating out uh, in the form of payments and withdrawals um, without new capital coming in. And you're also hit with the same affliction. I think it's more slow moving. So once again, I, I, I they're, they're doing a secondary right now between common and preferred. Um, Reuters is reporting that General Atlantic is has committed $500 million to the deal. Um, I think Silicon Valley Bank will, you know, live to fight another day. The, the people who will probably get hurt the most are the shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank who are going to have to take on the dilution of this capital fundraise. Um, so very different scenario from what we saw yesterday and over the last few weeks of Sil Silvergate. Um, but it is kind of the same root cause, which is, uh, you know, massively increasing yields in a very short period of time. Um, after a year of massive bloat of cash deposits. Um, so, uh, you know, this, this also isn't just going on with these two banks. Wall Street Journal reported earlier today, a few hours ago, that the top four banks in the U.S. or four of the top, top banks in the U.S. have lost $47 billion worth of market value just today. Um, so th this is not, you know, I don't think that there's contagion. I don't think there's massive risk. But, um, you know, there there is a question as to, like, where does this stop? Is this you know, going to be a risk for all the entire financial sector. I, I think it'll just be tough for the financial sector because they're going to have to deal with this. I think you're starting to see this pop up in a couple of places, though, like the Blackstone read stuff when people try to redeem, you know, the money isn't there. Silicon Valley Bank, like, sure, they might have a more concentrated set of customers that's depleting their their cash balances on hand. But this was probably a similar investment tactic deployed by most bank CIOs and, and they're probably all holding similar duration treasuries that have had similar, you know, levels of losses. I don't know, like you're, everyone's saying like we need this big credit event for, uh, you know, things to really like settle down and then recover. Like it kind of feels like 
it, this is now played out in crypto. This is now played out in tech banking. This is now played out in commercial real estate. Like maybe it's not going to be this like economy wide credit bubble, but it certainly feels like this is starting to happen more frequently. Guys, I'm trying to think about the like second order impact of this. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank like dominated the venture debt space. Does this freeze the the market for new venture debt? And if and if so, does that then accelerate the cycle of startup failures because they can't access venture debt? So or not, I would not really. that I would assume that market died probably. It's like already dead. Ago. Yeah. You know, like the, people just aren't like even capital call lend letters for, yeah. for venture firms like that kind of died around that same time period. Like, you know, for crypto, definitely for broader tech, probably um, like there are some gems in there in their financial times report where like they are doing venture debt. They're doing fund to fund investments into managers. They're doing things that like, I guess, like a, a normal bank wouldn't or wouldn't have access to at the least. And so, like, there's probably some stuff on the margin that, that gets a little tougher to do. But I, I think and I put this in our, our group chat on Telegram, if you want to throw that that little chart up there. I think that is more indicative of like what's happening to venture than anything else where, you know, the, and once you put this up, like you have deposits that are going down, there's less private investment um, and you have cash burn that's going up. And I don't know, maybe there's a lag, but I certainly would have expected probably the deposits to have gone down, but I also would have expected the cash burn to cut in a similar proportion but even in that financial times report they're basically saying you know it's not getting cut in that proportion that's not how it's actually working people are just spending and spending and spending that also strikes me as something that the general economy is probably going through as well right there's a lot of there's a lot of ticking time bombs that are have yet to go off your silicon valley bank on tuesday you've just seen silvergate go under on monday and then go into liquidation on tuesday you're sitting there on a bunch of bond losses on increasing customer withdrawals and you know like picture like there's five guys in a room like what are they talking about well uh, i I actually think we have to do this do we need to do this like yes we need to okay like they're watching the stock price they're trying to like find buyers first like this is not like you know uh business as usual for them i actually i one, one thing so silvergate that we're recording on thursday didn't silvergate announce their official shutdown yesterday on wednesday yeah, and Wednesday. Right. Yeah. yeah, I got the date wrong. <clears throat> so yeah. the the Wednesday announcement of Silvergate, I, I think, just happened to coincidentally fall on the day that Silicon Valley Bank was going to have to announce one point eight billion dollars in losses from sale of assets, because that that press release that went out on PR Newswire went out at four p.m. Eastern, so it had to be teed up beforehand, and they had to have done this already. It just happened to fall on the same day, which is just really unfortunate timing. Super unfortunate. But also, I mean, okay, so Credit Suisse, you know, which is one of the the famous banks that everyone will know. If if you had to take a guess, what do you think their market cap is? Uh, it's down 90% from all-time highs. 10 billion? It's 11 billion. It's yeah. 11 billion. All-time lows and con- continues to make all-time lows. Here's the point that I want to hammer home because the opposite has been kind of made popular in, in it's reached the mainstream. This is not a crypto problem. This is a direct result of policy that has been enacted for the last two years. So the explicit intention of quantitative easing is driving down rates to push people out on the risk curve. That's that's the explicit intention. They want people to spend money. They want investors to take risk. That is their solution for growth. 
So if you make interest rates zero, then you make the most conservative, most risk averse actors in the financial system, banks, take more risk. That's what they that's what they have to do, right? In order to be a solvent institution to be profitable. So it's this is a result of a zero interest rate regime more so than anything else. And Vance, you connected this to the BREIT redemptions that Blackstone is facing. You're absolutely right. It's the same. It's the same exact even, problem. Even Credit Suisse, right? It's like people need their money back. The money isn't there for one reason or the other. Or the things aren't liquid, or they're not. They're not like marked properly. It's and like my my to just hammer. You know, this point of course, home. it's going to happen to less liquid asset classes first, like real estate. But I think what we're finding is that like the bonds that people own are, are not actually that liquid, and if they are, they're sitting on pretty massive losses that they would be able to clear them at. Well, like, and. You know the the zero interest rate policy, yes, is uh, definite. That's the first step in this in this process. But the second step is how do you take risk as a bank? There's only one way to really take risk as a bank and do it in size, which is to put on more duration. And so now you're seeing the the effects of that, which is you have a mis you have a mismatch of duration, and it's just going to take time. And that means that in the meantime, you're going to have to shore up the ship and get the balance sheet liquid. So that if if you have you know continued withdrawals like I'm looking at it right now, Silicon Valley Bank is not down forty percent. It's down sixty percent today. That that's a scary fact. That's a scary fact because if you go back to that little chart that we're drawing, which is the assets, and then there's the liability plus equity. The equity is the buffer. That's the buffer, right? It's the ability to sell equity to raise cash. That's what's going to solve the problem here. So when the market cap and the stock price is falling. You, that is, we're watching the buffer, you know, get vaporized right. in front of our eyes. And and also, just to be abundantly clear, I I actually think that Silicon Valley Bank will be able to to shore up the ship. I, I think Silicon Silvergate was an unfortunate, you know, much smaller cap uh, bank with a very very concentrated uh, set of customers, as well as just not the same track record as Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so I, I think that there's going to be people to step in, just as we saw Citadel and BlackRock and a number of other participants step in uh, to, Sil to Silvergate. I, I don't think we're necessarily there yet, but there will be people who uh, step in for Silicon Valley Bank. I love how George Soros was on the right side of the Silvergate short, even after all those people piled in. He literally just drove it to zero. I, I do think it's not to go like full macro, but there's a there's a good uh, actually he was on uh, forward guidance with Jack Farley, this guy, Michael Howell, and he wrote this book called Capital Wars and like, you know, amateur armchair macro economists, whatever. But like the, the gist of his book is basically the Fed's job is has gone from setting interest rates to managing this massive pile of of you know high quality collateral and T-bills or bonds or things like that. And like, of course, when you're buying all the collateral, and you have a very liquid market, you know, you don't have many losses. And when that goes away, the opposite tends to happen. And it's like, I don't know, that's the only macro framework that I've found be able to tie everything together. Uh, even relative to last year, where you had a, a terminal rate that was a lot lower, um, but you had crypto and, and stocks that were, were higher this year, even though the terminal rate is a lot higher and, and things are a lot more aggressive. Like, it seems to me a lot of this, the the market seems to be functioning on just pure liquidity. And that's why bonds and stocks are moving in a more correlated way. That's why PEs are going up, even though the economic picture is darkening. Like that's the only thing that I have found that can really tie things together for me. Um, also, coincidentally, is calling for like, you know, more liquidity and like, you know, this could be the foundation of a new bull run. So like that, that plays to like my naturally bullish bias. But I do find it has been pretty consistent in, in just like thinking through all of these things and 
again, I don't know what the difference between like Credit Suisse and Blackstone or Rock is, but like, you know, these things all generally seem like the same problem. Not enough liquidity. I mean, this is this is like a, a foregone conclusion post 2008. <clears throat> you know, it's just the bigger are going to continue to get bigger, consolidate. And frankly, I mean, kind of surprised. So so just as like context, I don't know exactly when Silvergate you know, the regional bank that it was prior to getting into crypto actually got started. I think it had been around for a while, but it, it really in no real, in real like capacity. I think 2013. <clears throat> 2013. Okay. They got in, they got into crypto probably in the 2015, 16, 17 era. Cause I, I remember, you know, being customers of Silvergate when we were, when we were doing hash leads. Um, Silicon Valley bank has been around since 1994. You know, they've been, they've been around for three decades which means I think that they just have a, a they have a, a stronger case and they have a stronger user base, customer base. They just have a lot more track record and understanding of how to how to navigate these different cycles. Um, I'm also kind of surprised that you know with their success over the last few decades that they're not consolidated into a larger operation. Um, <clears throat> and maybe this is sort of one direction that they'll have to choose whether or not to go. Um, but it does feel like the ones that just got started, the ones that are, you know, relatively less strong, uh, compared to the large banks or the, compared to the banks that have been around for longer, you know, the, the first one to fall is Silvergate. From, uh, from Tom Schmidt reporting live from Twitter, Silicon Valley Bank CEO, Greg Becker on Thursday told top venture capitalists to stay calm. Uh, he added that the bank has ample liquidity to support our clients with one exception. If everyone is telling each other SVB is in trouble, that would be a challenge. Where have I heard this before? Well, I know, dude. Yeah, dude, that's tough. Like, <laughs> yeah, like tough. This is like but, the first me, of the four posts that lead to them being like we're gating withdrawals on the bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it feels pretty well, inevitable. Where, where? So, where do you send? So, like, you guys have Portcos who bank with probably Silvergate yeah. and SVB. Like, that's kind of the combo if you work in crypto, or like Silvergate and uh, First Republic. Where where are you send, where do you send people? Like are people just like racing to open JP Morgan accounts right now? Common there's a, practice. There's a bunch of banks in Europe that now want uh our port codes business, like BCB, places like Signum. Um there's also a few other European banks we just like haven't done diligence on yet. The hindered operating procedure is is to have three bank accounts once you get to a certain threshold of deposits and 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 frankly like separate out to make sure that you have like an operating account, you have like a high yield, maybe savings account where you don't need to touch the money very often. But like, that's generally, you know, let's say once you raise over like five to $10 million, what, what we kind of advise. So it's not really that hard. I mean, if, unless you have other intrinsic ties in business lines with, with one of these banks, it's not really that hard to, to ship your funds somewhere else if you've got two others. Uh, but yeah, it just depends on, you know, whether or not you can find that. But I do think most of our uh, most of our portfolio companies probably have an account with Silvergate, whether or not it's or sorry with Silicon Valley Bank, whether or not they're using it and it's their main account or only account. I think very few. I have a um, you know they're halting just, the stock. It's like trading right now. They keep halting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's wow. so wild. That's that was I a mean, twenty billion dollar bank a week ago. Look at the look at the other uh, the other stuff like uh, what is the other one? So uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, Bank of America, those are both down over 5% today as of the time of this recording. Dude, can you imagine the size of problems that some of these bigger banks, like to to our, our points earlier, like these are all niche banks, but like, 
I don't know, you, you have like the mega banks, but also like what about all the ones where like they're a small town bank and like the factory closed, you know, or they're laying yeah. people off or like, you know, there's more industries that are correlated than just like technology and crypto. I mean, also we're only into like, you know, six to nine months into non ZERP policy, right? Like this is uh, right. Yeah. And everyone, everyone's like, yeah, like, oh, the economy's so resilient. It's like, no, bro. Like this is just started. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like it doesn't, it's not like instant feedback loop. Yeah. Well, that's that's the, uh, someone, I can't remember who this was, but provided a helpful analogy here when it came to the price of oil. So remember when oil was spiking and everyone was really worried about it. And as it turns out, the thing about oil that kills people is not the spike, but it's the area under the curve. So if you have elevated prices for a long period of time, then that's when that's a problem. And so I I could think of the same analogy being, being true for interest rates, right? There's some amount of spike that you can kind of deal with. And that's like the analogy would be, Look at, look at what happened to all of these banks, right? When they bought a whole bunch of bonds at uh, very low interest rates, interest rates went up, their bond portfolio was underwater, but it's unrealized. It's an unrealized loss. So it took something, a spark, which is a bank run in both of these, both of these scenarios, in order for the, that unrealized loss to become a realized loss. Also, I'm pretty sure regulators monitor this pretty, pretty closely and carefully. And I think regulators get spooked about unrealized losses. I don't know what that is but this could be this could be signs of stress right for this could be the area under the curve when it comes to interest rates and yeah maybe the the economy was not as resilient as people thought you're you're available for sale securities you have to mark to market so you have to every quarter have to come out and say what are the value of those assets whether or not you realize them is a question what what silicon valley bank did uh, it seems is that they realized it to shore up the liquidity to shore up the balance sheet um, also raising more capital in the form of an equity financing. <clears throat> um, you know, those are, those are good facts. What, you know, now you have to figure out is what's the value of the assets and do they need to tap into the hold for maturity securities? Cause we know that those are underwater, but it's just a question of, you know, how long it'll take for them to have to dig into that. And hopefully they don't have to. Could be tough. The, the other thing just to, to put the bookend on the consolidation of finance, this is also, that's also why it's possible for. Janet Yellen to go out and say, Hey, we want to monitor every transaction over $600. That's a lot easier for, so all I'm, I, I'm not uh, one of those people who's like, Oh, this is all some big conspiracy, but I do think it makes everyone's lives easier when there's a very small number of very large banks and it will be, I think it's just way too early to call if this is the stress, but this is, this has been the thing that people have been kind of waiting for on the macro side of things. Like people thought something was going to break when they did this super aggressive pace, when it came, came to interest rate hikes. And everyone was kind of surprised that nothing really bad happened, but this, this is definitely signs of stress and it's not localized to crypto. This is not just sign of stress. This is two banks blowing up in a period of like 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah like if I told not, you that there was going to be a, a $30 billion. So the, the all time high for Silvergate is seven fifty. It's at one ten right now. It's a $6 billion market cap stock. If I told you a seventy billion dollar bank would go down ninety to ninety five percent, like, yeah, wait, Silicon wait, Valley Vance, Bank, what, Vance, what do you think is going to happen? Sorry, with, that, the Silicon Valley yeah. Bank, the 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 old all time high is seven fifty. Yeah, so it's yeah. like a. So wait, so guys, for uh, for SVB, what do you think happens? Do you think you think they end up raising raise, raising this money? They'll be fine, but shareholders will get screwed. 
Yeah, there's enough people like General Atlantic that have yeah. a vested interest in like the Valley continuing to win that will back this up. And I mean, the, it. the the other dynamic too is like General Atlantic, and it's out of the private equity firm uh, or funds. They're they're not a historical distress buyer. Like they, yeah, they're, they're like a growth venture firm, right? Exactly. Yeah, they're they're looking at this as a discounted value. <clears throat> they're not looking at this as a distressed opportunity. Um, which probably and and once again, not a banking analyst. Don't really pretend to be one. This is just me reading the tea leaves and a lot of Wall Street Journal. But I think generally there will be others that step in to fill the gap. If not others like General Atlantic, there's going to be an opportunity to sell uh, equity to you know more maybe more distressed oriented players. I mean, also I th- they've they've got to be one of the biggest banks in the U.S. Like top twenty in the U.S. Right? I think they're at that size. Top twenty, twenty five. They, they have hundreds of billions of deposits. You, you got to imagine the government would step in. No, Dude, the government was freaking out over Silvergate had like what? Yeah. 20 billion, 30 billion of deposits. Like this is a real big like people yeah. are like, oh, yeah, it's the te- it's the Silicon Valley. You know, it, California has like what? Twice the GDP of, of Canada. Like this is a huge bank. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, l- looking at this chart 211 currently last year yeah so last last year is uh do you mean 2022 or 2021 i don't know this is end of 2021 212 billion there at 750 no no q4 2022 212 billion in assets yeah 212 uh 342 of total client funds this this gets into the into the weeds of analysis. That, I think that's yeah. yeah there's there's smarter me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I agree. It's just like yeah. I'm just watching it go yeah. down. The equity ratio is two times the required amount. So they have a 15% equity ratio versus the required amount of 8%. So they could lose By half. Way, what does that mean? They could lose half the half the uh, shareholder half equity the, and half they'd the still be okay. right. But 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 the question is. Uh, was that two to one ratio before or after today? I'm gonna mm. guess before. Before I guess before too. So, uh, by the way, do we think this will be the last one of these? Um, I don't know about banks. I'm just not smart enough. But what I what I do think this is my like again general high level knowledge is that the regulation that got passed post GFC uh, made a lot of the more risky assets pass out of the banking system and move into kind of the broad like shadow shadow banking system. My I would guess that if there are signs of stress, it would come from come from there. Yeah. Like, shadow like banks more are the like Blackstone side. Yeah. It's basically anyone that gives leverage, extends leverage to investors or uh, you know, takes more risky collateral than banks are are capable of taking. It's a, it's a gigantic uh, industry. And it's it's kind of a broad definition, but that's that's where I would guess if there's problems, that's where it comes from. I know that's a funny name, but that's what it's referred to. No, no, I, I buy that. Yeah, that's what I would guess. I I don't think it comes from. I mean, I wouldn't have said that that this was going to happen, but I just I just don't know. Do you think the regulators? Do you think regulators have to like take a or? policymaker like do you think that that jerome powell is going to say something about this nothing has happened yet nothing literally nothing has happened yet a bank has dropped you know in share price unless there's anything else that happens where you have withdrawal gating or you know liquidity issues like 
listen, I, I, I read the same statement from the CEO. I, I can, I don't think you can make those statements publicly if you don't feel like the liquidity is strong. I, I would actually say, you know, this is probably going to be one PR news cycle and, and, you know, they'll raise the capital and then we'll move past it. I don't know if you see a multinational bank drop 60% in one day. I don't think, I don't think that goes unexplained. Like you have to go somewhere and testify in front of somebody in my, in like, that's my guess. I don't know how this works though. I mean, whatever's going to happen is going to happen really quickly. It's going to happen in the, in the course of the next like week, maybe two. I I also think it's more of a price thing. If you think, if you see this go under a hundred, which would be like 65 or 70 or 80% down, then I think it's also a different story. Cause you know, who's holding shares of SVB financial? Probably like retirees, older people, people looking for safe investments. Probably part of their nest egg. That's a good yeah. question. I don't know. I'm I'm not smart enough to guess how the the Fed or different regulators might think about this, but I'd have to imagine they'd look at this and at least be worried. I don't know if a public speech is coming, but even though like politicians might you know, put point the finger of blame in another direction. I think they're smart enough to know what really caused this and that it's probably not the last of it. I'm generally in the camp that these people are smart people and they know what they're doing. So I think they're smart enough to be pretty worried about this. I'd be worried about it. It's just tough when there's only one game in town. It's just like buying bonds and then you get smoked in like a once in a decade or once in a century occurrence. So the Jerome Powell spoke this week. And I think that that's probably what sparked a lot of this off. I mean, he basically reiterated higher for longer. And he had a the FOMC that he gave at the beginning of at last month surprised a lot of people. He came off as pretty dovish. And the general interpretation without rehashing that was that he was convinced or he thought that he might get his soft landing because there was still pretty strong, you know, strong unemployment or strong employment and retail sales and all of this stuff that might indicate that. And I think the market reacted super positively to that. That's why there was a big bump. And now he basically walked that back. The If you look at the the terminal rate, that spiked this week. That's at, I think, 5.7 or something like that. Uh, 5.8. And climbing. It feels like people were having deja vu for when he started hiking 75. And it was like, oh, shit, this is actually happening. Well, the the other thing, the the big thing that happened, too, is the chances, the market chances of a 50 basis point increase in a few weeks went from 30% to 80%. We're looking at uh, Cleveland inflation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, February looks kind of hot. It says like 0.54 CPI. It's usually like 0.1 to 0.15 over. Like it, it generally like overestimates. It's like think CPI is too hot. So, you know, that that's like 0.54 here. I'll put this. Well, in so, the chat. so let's just be 0.54 would imply greater than 6% uh, inflation rate, almost six and a half percent. If it's 0.5, it like looks bad. If it's 0.4, it like looks good. I think that's like the very simple way of phrasing this. So like maybe it's 0.4, maybe it's 0.5. It's kind of like depends how overestimating it is, but then March looks pretty cool. 0.27. Hmm. So I, I my, like my sense of people right now, and this is like not not macro, just like reading people's emotions is like, oh, my God, it's it's just like before where they hiked it to 75 and they wouldn't stop and it's going to be terrible. I don't know. I don't think the inflation numbers would would back that up in terms that, of like, oh, God, they're going to like 7 percent. That being said, 
you know, the other data that's been coming out. And I know you've got <clears throat> all kinds of official metrics when it comes to employment, labor, wages. Uh, all of the official statistics look like unemployment at an all-time low, job growth, wage growth seems to be in line, reasonable. <clears throat> but if you look at any of the private data, some of the Indeed.com, all of the different private metrics that you know are obviously not used by the Fed, but <clears throat> usually indications, just like we've been using home prices and um, some of the private data markers for the inflation numbers, all of those look like we're seeing terrible data. It maybe just hasn't populated through the official data sources yet. <clears throat> uh, February had the largest decrease in job op job opportunities and job openings uh, based on Indeed.com since June 2020. You know, back when everything basically halted for for COVID. So February was the worst month over month change. Um, and I can't remember the number. I think it dropped like 6.3% or something along those lines. Um, I would broadly say that I think we're also going to start to see unemployment creep up, which means that we actually might have a tougher macro scenario uh, from just an economic metrics perspective than everybody expected. Maybe maybe these credit crunches and liquidity issues are, are the canary in the coal mine, just as higher federal funds rate is intended to do that slows down economic activity, which leads to layoffs, which leads to potential recession. Um, and at least, you know, the, the macro people that I follow, the, the general consensus seems to be sometime in the summertime, you know, we'll, we'll be able to say that that was the start of a recession. Like what we're seeing is like, obviously crypto is like rebuilding tech feels like it's like really in the middle of this like gnarly layoff cycle. And, and people are like, like people aren't hiring PMs, people aren't hiring from business schools. Like that's what tech feels like. Yeah. Uh, curious, Yano, Michael, like, what do your friends think? It, like, some people, I guess, think it's like a really robust economy, but like most of our friends don't. You know, you want, I feel like I've been talking a lot this episode, but I, I think, I don't think people really know what, I think if you work in tech, like I keep referencing, I've got one friend that works at Salesforce, but the way, the way that I hear it, it's that Elliott management, that board seat that they took has actually worked quite a bit. And you guys were dead right about their kind of strategy for layoffs. It's not just a one once and done cut. That possibility is kind of hanging over everyone's head. They're smart and they're a well-managed company. So they've kind of divided things up and been like, hey, there's you're on the right track, right? They've kind of put people in the good box and then the penalty box. And I think that's a that's a pretty smart way of doing it. Uh, but I, but I think that's you know you think that's you think that's <laughs> like a, adult daycare five timeout yeah five minute timeout time dude adults are just children too honestly it's like the biggest the biggest realization of being an adult is we're all just as, kids as as the Garrett Garrett if you're listening to this we gotta clip this with Mike saying this with the tin foil <laughs> we are we're all just we're all just children they're putting microchips in the in actually I can't say that we're gonna get us no, taken no. off YouTube yeah. <laughs> No, making the frogs. Yeah, no, gay. no YouTube views from this one. Wait, Vance, yeah, what was your original question? What, what was your question? Do what our, do our friends, friends think that we're in a bull market or a bear market? No, no. Like, uh, are the are the worries about inflation or growth? Uh, most of my friends believe that we are in hard we are in hard times right now. Like, ever, all all of my friends who either work in tech or consulting or PE or wherever maybe 
no no one's no one's company is doing great right now consulting and, is uh, a great barometer for this too because like generally it's companies that don't have okay so consulting's companies. interesting right now consulting like um i've you know friends at like mckinsey or bcg or whatever when things are really good their business thrives when things are in the total shitter their business thrives but right now they're bit everyone's on the beach because um yeah everyone's on the beach because uh they're like companies have kind of like come off the rebound but they're like in this weird like middle zone and they don't like need it's not like all hands on deck like it was three months ago 2009 and 2020 i believe or maybe 21 were some of the best years for consulting firms just from a a number of hours Mm -hmm. of work um mike spent mike spent a lot of time on the beach (laughs) the the other thing yeah the other thing that i'll say The, the other thing that I'll say, and, and this is uh, a bias that probably I have uh, just based on a ton of friends who work in private equity. Number one, the, the ability to sell to a sponsor, dead. That market, completely gone. The ability to IPO a company, dead. Can't do it. So there's no liquidity whatsoever. You also have a lot of these companies that just were levered to the hilt in terms of, you know, maybe LIBOR plus 500 basis points. And so you've literally gone from 6%. Floating, floating, flo- floating. All of this is floating. Yeah. When you, when you do, you know, a, a sponsored levered buyout, it's all floating. So it goes from 6% that you have to pay every year just to service the debt to 11%. Like most of these companies are going to have a really tough time just being able to debt service based off of their cash flows. And so I like, there's going to be another shoot a drop here, which is all the companies that are private. So you don't get to track them every single day or every single week that are not going to be able to make their debt service. And those are going to become issues as well. Could, could I try to make a guess at what I think people like the, I think this has happened broadly across a whole bunch of different sectors, but I, cause I, uh, a, a guy who is, is decently high up at this consulting firm that I know he was like, oh yeah, we were going to do a whole bunch of layoffs, but then the year started a little bit better. And now we decided not to do layoffs. And I think broadly what happened is we ended last year, everyone was super bearish and they were like, we're going to wait and see what happens in January, February. And then the market rallied and people were like, thank God we're out of this. I knew it. We're back. And now I think people don't feel <laughs> It was transitory all along. <laughs> it was transitory all along. And I have a, this is a, this is an anecdote. So, so take it for what it's worth. But there's a guy, James DeVolos, who told this story on, on the margin, he's a portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics, which is a great hedge fund. They're pretty early in in crypto. He told he told me a story about a guy who was at a at a commercial real estate conference. Um, this, by the way, I know there was that was flying around Twitter this week. This predates that, but oh, basically, what, he was said, that the original? Because I saw about fifteen different versions. It wasn't of that. the original. It wasn't the original. No, 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 no. But uh, what he what he said was this was I think multifamily specific. But what he said was that what everyone did was they, they bought basically a bunch of assets, right? That were priced at zero interest rates. Everyone was underwater. But what people did was the thing that people want is a, basically a one-year term loan, like an extension loan. And everyone's like, and he was like, well, well, why only one year? And the general consensus was because the Fed's going to pivot. So the other thing that happened this week is the expectations of a Fed pivot, which was getting priced in for, I think, September this year, has gotten pushed out till mid 24. So if you did a one year financing, you're shit out of luck 
you were like, okay, I've got my solution here. I'm going to wait until the Fed pivots. Now the Fed's not going to pivot. You are in you are in trouble. And I think that general sentiment that the Fed is going to pivot and we're out of the woods here, that was pervasive across not just finance, but a whole bunch of different things. So I think that's the I think that's the zeitgeist right now, if I had to try to put my finger on it. I think you're seeing just like the fear trade come back. Yeah. There's like the fear trade and then there's like the greed trade. Those are kind of like the two. It's like people are either like longing Chinese coins that they heard about from their friend or they're like trying to get into T-bills. There's like no middle ground. But like if you look at this Cleveland Fed report, I don't know, doesn't really seem like inflation is going to be that big of a deal. And I think when you see all the headlines go from inflation to growth concerns, that's when you're going to know it's like, okay, you know, it's a different type of trade is back. But if there's like a interlude of like a bunch of banks blowing up, that's going to be pretty bumpy. Yeah. I was about to say, we're also only nine days into March. So, you know, this, this March data, um, you know, also, also may bump around a bit. Yeah. Like one of my, one of my friends just texted me, large cap banks aren't supposed to trade like Dogecoin. (laughs) I have no, like, I did not do this. I did not cause this problem. Like, now everyone thinks wow, the crypto wow, people are like, blowing up these banks. T minus how many days until until we're talking about how crypto speculation has uh, come over into the traditional financial market and is driving these banks down? I know. Well, that's why we're trying to be very clear about what the root cause of the problem is here. And it's yes. not, because I agree with you, Michael. That's what's going to happen. wasn't me. Yeah, I saw Mike Isaac tweeted out. He's like, what's the, he's like, what, 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 what was SVB's exposure to, to web three is like tr- clearly trying to like draw some correlation there. <laughs> hey, Mike, Mike, Mike Isaac what, also please tweeted out that I was a, uh, two years ago, Mike, do you remember this? He's like, Jason Yenowitz is nothing but a crypto scab or something. Do you, I remember, do you remember that? that? <laughs> he got called out by, got, yeah. I, I mean, listen, that. it's still happening. Um, Vance, can I tell the story of yesterday? <laughs> Yes, you can tell it. I'll approve tell it. Tell it. Tell the story. Tell, tell the story. Tell Van, Vance went to go. Uh, Vance went to go send a payment at, at Chase Bank. Oh yeah. And and the banker uh, looks at his account and and says, "Huh, into Web three. How's that been going?" <laughs> yeah, we'll never forget my retail banker trying to like ratio me IRL. It's like, how's Wait, it Vance, going? You looked. You looked really concerned there. What did you think that story was going to be? What did, what did you What did you get my, up to my, yesterday? Yeah, what got, was yesterday? A busy schedule, man. <laughs> That's fine. You can tell that story. Oh, we didn't even ask you about East Denver. How was East Denver? Oh, uh, East Denver is good. It was great. I mean, there were thirty five thousand registrants, like twelve thousand attendees. It's, it's a massive event. Um, let's see. What are What are some takeaways? Zeke. Every, every other panel was about ZKs. So, like ZKs were super pervasive privacy stuff was like yeah all these panels on privacy which really reminded me of 2019 um like too much privacy stuff honestly roll-ups like yeah i mean there's like zk evm zk roll-ups just like zk everything um roll-ups were all over the place in terms of like specific projects that were talked about a lot like celestia and uh eigenlayer like you know every conversation was like celestia and eigenlayer in terms of like other ecosystems I mean, it's ETH Denver, so obviously ETH was like, you know, everyone's building on EVM. Um, but like, if, if I had to pick one other ecosystem that was like in the narrative a little bit, I'd say Cosmos. Um, people there either like love Cosmos or they hate Cosmos. And uh, that so that was interesting. Uh, 
no consumer stuff, no NFT stuff. Actually, some really good games. Uh, there's a whole gaming section there, which I know, Michael, you and Vance are much deeper into games than Mike and I are. But like, there were some really, I don't remember the names of them, but like, there's a whole gaming section where you could play these games. And there were like tier one games. Like, I've never, like, they were like, it was like, this could be an Xbox game. Um, and, but they were like, you know, they're crypto native games. So that, that was pretty cool because I haven't seen a crypto game in like 18 months. Uh, and they were really good, really good gameplay. So, I mean, <clears throat> just to touch on to that point, uh, the games that we're seeing are going to be interchangeable with Web 2, Web 3. It's just what happens on the back end in terms of, you know, where is the ownership uh, sitting? The other, the other anecdote that we're seeing with some of these games <clears throat> is that the retention, which then feeds into lifetime value, is three to four X what you would see traditionally with a, an equivalent Web 2 game. So, it, you know, this, the suspicion and the theory and the thesis was right, <clears throat> that if you imbue value into gaming ecosystems, there's going to be a lot larger desire to stick around and and... I think the one question is like, are these, and this is a fair question, are is it causation or correlation? Are these like the early adopters who are coming over from free to play or like web two gaming that are already high lifetime value customers and they're just like there to play and test these things out and therefore, you know, the monetization looks really positive. So that's a fair criticism. I think it's, you know, something that we're going to be testing and figuring out, but it, it, at least early signs look positive. Guys, I, I really want to make sure that we've got enough time to talk about Coinbase wallets as a service. Can we? I just want to do that before yeah. we uh, we actually. Yeah, this was a this was I thought a super cool announcement. And by the way, I feel like we keep shouting them out, or at least I do. But it has been wild to watch the turnaround of Coinbase over the last year. You know, the story going into 2022 was way too bloated. Uh, all these, you know, shipping a whole bunch of products but getting traction on none. And the story of Coinbase, at least for the last. And I know that there's a roadmap, I'm sure, that lined up with this. But the last three months, it's just like hit after hit after hit. And they've trimmed their team down. It seems like they've got their head on straight, a very cohesive focus. They did the launch of base. Uh, and now Wallace as a service is a massive win. I think, Yano, you know a little bit more about this than I do. But basically, it's whitelisted li- white wallets, right? So they provide the infrastructure that allows anyone to basically just say, hey, here's a a wallet that we can use. Let me just step in and, and maybe uh, not counter, but at least provide some opposing opinion. And, and granted, like Coinbase is our dominant partner from everything that we do, um, from custody to trading, et cetera. We have others as well, but we, we love to work with Coinbase. But also they, they have done a lot of major launches that haven't worked. I think the proof will be in the pudding in terms of, you know, what does the uplet, uptake from base look like? What does the uptake from Coinbase wallet look like? But the fact that, you know, NFT marketplace literally went nowhere, um, you know, that that was a miss. Um, I think they're going to take a shot at all the different layer two ecosystems. And, and that's what base is. And they're going to take a shot at Fireblocks, And that's what their wallet is. But I, I agree. It's really sad to see them take real shots now. Ooh, I don't think that's what their wallet is, actually. Here, so... I- First off, I think the NFTs failed because um, because of who they hired and because of who the team was behind the NFTs. So, so like, here's the main difference when you talk to like the base team versus the NFT team. The NFT team was like, at least the people I interacted with, was a bunch of Web2 people who had never worked in crypto before and they hired to come build this thing. And their strategy, which like I actually really understand at the time, was like, let's go hire a bunch of people from Instagram and like those kind of places and like, and, and, and they'll 
they'll be able to on you know do consumer tech really well, whatever. Uh, and that and that thesis definitely didn't play out. If you, I, I'm really biased because I ended up spending a lot of time with the Coinbase team in Denver. So I hung out a lot with Will, who's their VP of engineering, and Jesse, who's leading Base, and he kind of gave me some insights into where Base is going. It's very, they're thinking about it in like a very crypto native way. And, um, and I think they're thinking about it in the right way. And then, and then just the last thing, Michael, to touch on the wallet as a service. I don't think wallet as a service is a competitor to Fireblocks at all, actually. I think wallet as a service is, is a developer <clears throat> toolkit, APIs and SDKs that allow anybody to go build a wallet um, and just basically white, yeah, white label a wallet. So Yep. Like so, when, so that that yeah. that is definitely the case, <clears throat> and and I think the positioning of it externally is developer uh, focused tooling. Um, we had a call with Coinbase yesterday uh, and and talked to them about the wallet and the different offerings. That their their positioning for the institutional side of it is this will be an MPC enabled Fireblocks replacement where everything will be you know the the assets that aren't supported by by Prime will be able to be stored in Coinbase Wallet with an MPC like solution. Mm frankly, like we have now with Fireblocks. Um, so I, I think it's actually both. Like it's definitely positioned as a developer tool for anybody who wants to go build a wallet service into their into their app or into their I ecosystem. But I, but I think the business model behind the wallet will be more like a Fireblocks. Well, there's Coinbase Wallet and then there's Coinbase yeah. like Wallet as a service. And those are two different things. Well, yep. same technology, but two different things. So here, here's the, bear, here's the uh, Mike, my Mike, Mike Ibolito, because I, I know you were... <laughs> Optimistic on my mic. Yeah. Uh, you were as bullish on the wallet as a service as I was. And I was trying to pick holes in this. I think if you wanted to pick a hole in this and say this maybe won't work is there are a lot of, comp because Coinbase has so many products, there are a lot of people who actually compete with Coinbase. And do you want Coinbase? Do you want your entire backend, your entire tech stack on the wallet side of things, which is where you own the relationship with the customer? Do you want that to be owned by your competitor? So if you're another exchange, you would never use this. If you're someone in the NFT game, you would never use this. If you're someone who does staking, you probably wouldn't use this. So like there are, there are a lot of competitors there. Let me let me lay out. This is why I like all of this. Let me let me lay out how I think about Coinbase as a business here. I think you are going to see the unbundling of the crypto exchange. I think basically Coinbase has two different directions that they can go. They can either become JP Morgan, big financial institution, heavily regulated, or they can take the the new path. And I think you have to unbundle. There's actually very good reasons why in TradFi, you don't have prime brokerage and custody and the exchange all lumped into the same thing. Those are in different organizations for like very good reason, I think. So the way that it works right now is non-sustainable over a long period of time. The reason I like what Coinbase is doing is because I think what they're doing is positioning themselves as kind of a thin application layer, a very crypto native thin application layer on top of a bunch of these services, but they're making sure that they take their piece, right? So the way that Base as a chain and Coinbase as a wallet go together is I think the bet that they're making is right now, a lot of the trading is happening on centralized exchanges over a period of time that's going to move to decentralized exchanges and the value that's going to get extracted there is either you know fees on, from the from the chain you know base the chain or it's swaps in in wallet swaps from the wallet or it's mev that gets extracted at the sequencer level that's a fascinating business that wall street just doesn't understand and i think it makes a lot of sense the wallets as a service the reason i think that's interesting is Michael, you said this, there's still a, a wallet problem when it comes to crypto. I actually think, I think that a 
potential use case that we don't all see is that a lot of really big so uh, Michael Bodley on our team, one of our reporters, has been breaking these stories about Amazon. It seems like the initiative at Amazon for crypto is actually quite real, and they're all very interested in NFTs. I think there's a really good chance that corporates that have enormous user bases and distribution might, they are going to want to play in Web3 crypto, and the first thing that they need to do is get a wallet. And I, so I actually think that corporates might end up indirectly solving our wallet problem, get a whole bunch of people in crypto and the wallet as a service, the white labeled wallet solution from Coinbase is what's going to help them get there. So that's why I think it's, it, it's just, it's just interesting. I'm just interested to, to watch how it plays <clears> out, but that was yeah, my I thinking. Mean, it, it is interesting. And so to touch on the Coinbase, you know, business model as a whole, um, I, I, I continue to believe that there is a broader strategy here, as I think we're discussing. I also think that it's a bold move to effectively disintermediate your core business. Um, <clears throat> it's not the same, but an interesting analogy might be, you know, just the fact that in 2007, when the iPhone was launched, you effectively killed the entire iPod business, as well as a lot of the use cases of the personal computer business by putting it all into one device. But and, and also, um, there were a lot of people who were not positive from a Wall Street and analyst perspective on Apple at the time. Um, so I think that it's going to take time for this strategy to play out and for you know the data to be undeniable. Um, but I agree that I think it's a step in the very much right direction. Um, and then um, <clears throat> I, I think on the rest of it, um, yeah, I mean, I I, I believe that um, yeah, the, the, that they're going to be able to move in this direction, uh, and, and that there's going to be, you know, major changes. Um, and I can't remember my last point, so we'll, we'll skip there. Did you know, uh, a fun fact about Apple is that when it <laughs> did its IPO, sorry, the, uh, the, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a new action that I just saw coming in. KuCoin just got, uh, regulated by the attorney general of New York. Oh boy. What does that mean? They and got part of, part of the, who, who uses KuCoin? Oh, well. I don't know. But, but uh, part of the complaint, at least um, from what we're talking about internally is that it appears to purport that ETH is a security. Oh yeah. New York AG claims that ETH is a security in the KuCoin lawsuit. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that headline distracted me. <laughs> Uh, Michael, where do you get your headlines like that one, like flow of news? Uh, that one was sent by our GC. Ah, nice. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay, that wouldn't be great. So, sorry, I, I Mike. Do, what was your one, second one, Mike? What was your What was your second point after the broader oh, Coinbase? I was just going to say one of the funny things about Apple is that when it IPO'd back in, I think it was nineteen. 87 or something like that. 76. Uh, regulators were actually 76. Regulators were really concerned about it. And the regulators in the state of Massachusetts actually banned it from being sold to retail. Largest, uh, I think one of the most successful companies in the history of the world. Isn't that, isn't that funny? Um, so funny little, funny little piece of history there for thank, you. Thank you. Thank you for the protection. Feel protected. <laughs> I extremely protected. Yeah, the, the other thing that happened this week that may or may not end up being significant, but I did want to flag it, is there was a judge that overruled the, I think, initial action from the SEC and actually allowed the sale of Voyager 
to go through to Binance US. So I'd keep in mind, you know, the SEC is obviously on the warpath when it comes to, to crypto, but there is a, you know, it doesn't actually become law, right, law or precedent or whatever it is until all this stuff gets adjudicated in courts. And there's a chance that the legal system or judges or whatever won't end up going with what the SEC complaint was. So, so yes, also, um, I remember my second point, but we can skip it. Uh, the, uh, the, the thing about this type of a process and why we've seen so many of these settlements is you basically have two options when you know there's a regular regulatory complaint against you. You can go and fight it out in court, which probably will cost you know way more than what the settlement might be, and you have a chance of losing and then paying the settlement anyways, or you can just settle and move on. And in this specific situation, it's different because you're talking about a bankruptcy estate who's complaining against the complaint that the SEC raised. Um, and so it just goes straight to a judge who's adjudicating the entire bankruptcy proceeding. Um, but I think the broader point is, you know, what does this have in relation to all the other lawsuits that are going on? And the other big thing that happened this week is uh, there was initial uh, – uh, initial proceedings in the Grayscale versus SEC complaint, and <clears throat> at least you know I, I've I've just read the secondhand opinions or secondhand perspectives of people who were there in the room. Um, but it it seems like Grayscale. There are three judges that were listening to this, and it was expected that one of them would likely be on the side of Grayscale at the beginning. And it seems like two, if not three, were more on the side of Grayscale, at least based on their line of questioning following the initial discussions. Uh, during that proceeding. So yes, this is, you know, great for Voyager customers because it means that they, and they've already started doing this. They've started the process of rebalancing. They've started the process of distributing to Binance US. Um, That's great because customers will get their assets assets back sooner. Um, But then the other thing that's going on too is, you know, all the different other battles that are being fought at the SEC on all different fronts. And it doesn't seem like, you know, at least initially the grayscale one is going in the direction that was expected. Now, this doesn't mean anything from from a Bitcoin spot ETF perspective. Um, It's very possible that the uh, rejection gets thrown out by the judges, but then that goes back to the SEC and then they just decide whether or not they're going to come up with a new reason for rejection. Um, But it it is interesting to follow how all these court proceedings are are progressing. Well, the other thing that happened this week, I don't know if you saw... Biden, the Biden administration proposed a whole new slew of changes to the tax code. You might be getting a 40% capital gains tax, which would be. Listen, he, he, he went for it. I don't think there's a single thing that has been proposed from a new tax increase that was not included in this leaked budget plan. Um, so, you know, I, I think what this is, is a recognition. And the reason why, you know, this isn't massive news right now. I mean, it's kind of news, but not like major news is because everybody knows that there's no way that this thing ever has a chance of passing. Uh, I think it's just an initial, um, it's an initial play in the negotiations that's going to come down in a few months for debt ceiling increases and broadly uh, leading into the election in 10 months uh, or election year in 10 months. So I, I think this is more of just like a shot um, and, and basically a scarecrow to to be able to say, hey, this is what I stand for. Um, but yeah, man. There 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 would be a lot of a uh, lot of upset people across the board if if this uh, were to become law. I don't know too much about politics and what the game theory is and everything. It does seem like there's an enormous amount of posturing that goes on, but I I agree with you. I don't think it it doesn't seem like there's probably a super realistic chance of that passing. 
I think the big one in there, and this is going to be probably a, a huge topic of conversation um, starting soon, but also in, in 10 months in election proceedings, is what happens with support for, for Medicare uh, and expanding, uh, increasing taxes to to continue to fund Medicare. Because I, I think right now the trust is set to run out in like 2025 or 2026. And at that point, you'd have to go down to like 80% coverage. Um, which would obviously be 80% coverage, but it also reduced some of the more uh, less less um, central uh, health services that Medicare recipients are expecting. Um, so any changes to that, I think, are, are very, very tough. Um, but I think that's that's like the meatiest kind of like toughest one in in the in the slate of changes that is supposedly going to be proposed. Powerful, uh, powerful political tool, weaponizing Medicare. I feel like. Republicans did that to Dems for a while, and then now Dems are doing it to Republicans. Those um, those are entitlements that you cannot. I think that's the if you go back to our analogy of a balance sheet, that's definitely a liability of the U.S. government. And you can you can print all the money that you want, but at the end of the day, a human being has to go and deliver that care that was promised to people. So, and if you if there's infl- if you keep printing money and there's more inflation, then the cost, it's indexed to inflation. Sorry, that was the other thing. And so is social security. So you're not saving any money. That is a fixed, that is a fixed cost that the government owes. So just, just worth saying for sure. Man. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of fun stuff. Uh, let's see how next week turns out. We <laughs> shall see. Yeah, we'll see. I just got a notification that Huobi Hobie token dumped like 60% in two minutes. So great. We're moving. We're moving. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Phenomenal. All right, guys. Phenomenal work, fellas. Nicely done. We'll see you guys next week.